Hello, and welcome back to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. I'm your host, Adam Biles. Last week, I welcomed Lindsay Tremuta to our reading library to chat about her second book, The New Parisienne, in which, through 50 fascinating interviews, Lindsay seeks to dismantle the persistent archetype of the women of this city as reed-thin white fashionistas and replace it with something much more open, much more inclusive and much truer to life. Our conversation deals with Paris, of course, but also with feminism, race, power, storytelling, activism and tech. Not forgetting food, on which subject the New Parisienne includes a great directory of some of Paris's best cafes, patisseries, bars, shops and institutions, all run by women. Lindsay was kind enough to sign our copies of The New Parisienne, which, if you're quick, you'll now be able to find on our online store at www.shakespeareandcompany.com. While you're there, why not also browse our rare books, themed boxes and gifts, including our brand new denim tote bag. Every order on our website is personalised, packaged and sent from our bookshop in the heart of Paris to wherever you are in the world. Now, without further ado, let's meet Lindsay Tremuta. I began the conversation, like every conversation at the moment, by asking how she'd cope with lockdown and how she's adapting to life in a radically changed city. I guess where I'd like to begin is just talking, you know, we can't ignore the context of this um, this interview, this event. I mean, normally we'd have been downstairs, there'd have been a crowd of 60 or 70 people that we squeezed into the shop, they'd be sitting on each other's laps. And, of course, we're up here socially distanced in the library of the bookstore uh, because we're recording this on July the 9th. We're just out of, well, we're two months almost. Out yes, of almost two months. Um, but I'm still curious to know how it was for you. Were you, in, were you in Paris? I was. I was very much stuck in Paris in the 11th arrondissement where I've lived for 14 years. Mm. And um, this apartment is bigger than the initial apartment I lived in, which made the experience you know, slightly more uh, tolerable. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I, I mean, we had nowhere, my husband and I had nowhere to go anyway. Uh, nowhere else to go, I should say. Unlike a lot of Parisians. Unlike, surprisingly, a great number of Parisians. 20, 25%, I think? I mean, that's an astounding number, mm -hmm. and yet it didn't, it didn't surprise me. There are also mm -hmm. a lot of people who fled to wherever they had friends who had sure. homes. And, um, and I think that perhaps my um, sort of, e not ease, because there was a, mm -hmm. you know, a moment of, great discomfort when confinement lifted. Um, but I do think that perhaps I'm living a little bit more normally now mm -hmm. because I was here through it and I, you know, saw the different stages and I didn't have to come back after three months away and feel mm -hmm. panicked to the same degree. So I'm, I'm actually quite happy I stayed. Um, Is that something you've felt from sort of friends or yeah. acquaintances who were away? That yeah, yeah. I have a few friends who are actually still away mm -hmm. um, and have only come back, you know, you know, for an afternoon into the city and they feel really nervous. Mm -hmm. um, to a degree, we should all remain nervous. Of course. Uh, but, you know, we also need to try to figure out a way to navigate this experience. And I think that we have a slight edge mm -hmm. um, given that we were here. Uh -huh. um, but it's, I mean, I'll never forget this moment. I think sure. Paris has had in the last five years so many unprecedented experiences and I've you know yeah. lived through, we I mean Freshly we both foul. lived through all of them <laughs> and and it really does change or it does make me feel closer to the mm -hmm. city in a lot of ways um I know some people are also thinking about okay they want to spend more time in nature and they sure, want yeah. you know it has a different long-term effect um I kind of still feel anchored here mm -hmm. and realize that um there's a lot more to do but I do also want to kind of escape every so often uh -huh. so I think it's for me it didn't change a whole lot except that now I I'm a cyclist sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the biggest transformation and in a way potentially you're a cyclist thanks to one of the people you interview in the new Parisienne um we'll come on to talk specifically about about this this person a bit later I think but um it will be interesting I think to see how Sorry, I will just pause for... I assume this is, these are the warplanes coming in for the 14th I think of so, July yeah. Or they're practicing or something. Yeah. Or saying. It's <laughs> quite... Worrying that they might need to practice. I know! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the... So you mentioned sort of what Paris has been through in the last uh, five years. Obviously, if people... For people who don't live here, perhaps we should specify, of course, the Charlie Hebdo attacks, the Bataclan attacks, 
flooding, flooding Notre Dame, Notre Dame uh, the pension reform strikes, the gilets jaunes before that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a very intense five years if yeah. you've lived in this city. Um, and and certainly different aspects of the city have felt that, yeah. um, or certain neighborhoods have felt that more intensely. Um, of course, here mm-hmm. at the bookstore, you have experienced it. And over where I live, you know, I was about an eight-minute walk from Bataclan, less mm-hmm. than an eight-minute walk. So, you know, I'm plus I'm I'm right near where the demonstrations occur. Of course, I'm near yeah, République. Yeah. You know, it's uh, okay. Um, so it's it's just a uh, you know maybe maybe to some degree this is what people in different periods of time mm-hmm. have experienced in a city. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. lots of agitation, lots of you know, moments of chaos. Um, but I do think that it's been very condensed uh-huh. for Paris. But that's interesting, like this, this sense of agitation and chaos, because it, it does sort of feed into um, a feeling I had when reading The New Parisienne was that this sort of, maybe it's contributed to a certain loosening in Paris. Um, mm-hmm. Because at, at, at a moment in the book, you talk about uh, Paris and France being a very conservative country. And this was one of the things I confess, like when I moved here, all of 15 and a bit years ago, that was the thing that surprised me most about French society. Learning that it was actually more conservative? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was a sense of, you know, I came to France, I think a lot of Anglophones particularly come to France with a certain idea of what France is and what Paris is. And mine was very much informed by, uh, you know, the the 60s, the sort of the existentialist kind of the philosophy, that sort of scene. Um, And of course, there's sort of this feeling of sort of Paris being a sort of a revolutionary city. Totally. And also being the a city that gave us some of the the world's most prominent feminist writers, and then to come to a city and to find that not really uh, encapsulated in everyday life yeah. was quite a surprise. I I think that's that was like a, a concentrated version of what I went through when I was working on this. It was it was like I was unraveling injustice that I knew was there. Mm-hmm. And then once I began, I couldn't stop unraveling it. And now right. it's all I can see almost, mm-hmm. which is not a great place to be in. But I do still think there's a lot of hope. Um, and the women, you know, the women who are perhaps the most vocal or the most committed to some of these issues mm-hmm. um, themselves remain hopeful. So if they can, I feel like I have to as well. But it does mean that there's, you know, it's very easy to take in one story, sure. one side of a place. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that can be, in some cases, quite dangerous. You know, the way that we allow ourselves to be informed about a destination. I mean, mm-hmm. if everyone, um, you know, looked at America as, you know, for, for the current state of, of, of affairs, I mean, that, that's quite reductive, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think we all have to ask ourselves why Paris sometimes escapes this moment of challenging assumptions. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it just lives on. Uh, the brand that it has become lives on, and so its people have almost become part of that brand. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately for a big chunk of the population who don't fit what that sort of brand looks like, um, you know, they're always sort of feeling like they don't belong. Uh-huh. And that, that's something, um, that idea of a brand, it's not just the city, but as you talk about, it's also the Parisian sort of women of Paris. And uh, I've already confessed to you, when I when I see a book that is about... That sort of purports to be about a certain type of person. Right. I'm immediately on guard, <laughs> um, and you know, I, as I said to you, I know your work, so I was quietly confident it wasn't going to be that type of book. But we also know that these kind of how to live life, oh, yeah. sort of genre of books, sell really well. Um, and then, of course, you, you you reassure us immediately, not actually through your words, but from a with I think possibly the first words in the book. Uh, from Rakaia Diallo, yep. um, her quote about the the need to reconstruct the image yeah. of the Parisienne. So, I mean, the the reality is that there are French women um, or women living in Paris who have felt this way for a long time, uh, but nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and for our listeners and uh, viewers, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that. What what that brand of the Parisienne? Okay, so is. if we think about you know. What, what some of the common, I mean, you can call them stereotypes or certain qualities that come up when we see articles discussing Parisian women or characters in films, um, and certainly in literature, mm-hmm. you know, not any recent literature, but, you know, classic literature. It's women who are 
you, the first word that always comes to my mind is a seductress. So uh-huh. someone who is a, a you know very uh, concerned with you know sexuality mm-hmm. and um, and 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 being sort of a temptress. Sure. She's also white. Mm-hmm. That I mean is you know regardless of the fact that it's it's no it's no new uh, reality that mm-hmm. there are more than um, that there you know there's a great diversity of women here. But in depictions, she's you know ninety nine percent white she's affluent she's heterosexual Mm -hmm. she's able-bodied um i would think she's also christian or catholic Mm -hmm. um skinny and thin (laughs) like that is that is the prerequisite Mm -hmm. um and so you have this genre that's been built around well like why why is she the way she is well Uh then you have the books that you know will tell you well she is the way she is because of you know these philosophies of life Mm -hmm. or the way that she uh, eats and cooks and you know all of it is trying to put her into this box that no one can aspire to uh-huh. not even the people who live here sure um, yeah. and yet you know on, on covers of women's magazines it's still the uh, mm-hmm. the archetype um, and unfortunately still in foreign media as well uh-huh. I mean so it, you know at once what really struck me um, and sort of pushed me in the in the desire to to do this book was you know seeing the hundredth article mm-hmm. in foreign media about how french women which are always you know who are always conflated with the parisian woman Oops, yeah. I, i'm sure that a marseillaise does not uh-huh. consider herself <laughs> the same so you know it's it's not a you can't just copy paste sure. um but so seeing the hundredth article about that and how they do everything better mm-hmm. and i thought to myself this needs to stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, very quickly I started noticing just how bad it is here. Sure. So the representation of women in French media, whether mm-hmm. it's on television, in film, and then, of course, the women's magazines perpetuate the same same kind of images. That's quite unusual, I guess, in a way for a sort of, it's not quite a national stereotype, but that kind of, because, I mean, often people will project onto, for example, the, the British man, you know, we'll get in France people will talk of bowler hats and umbrellas and suits and it's right. that sort of traditional kind of city attire. Right. But of course, broadly, that stereotype is meaningless to most English people. And yet the this image of the Parisienne, it seems to be sort of have quite a pernicious effect both abroad, but also exactly. in Paris itself. Exactly. And that, you know, I, I started to gather from, you know, before I, I had started to work on the manuscript and before I was interviewing anybody, I was, you know, doing a lot of observation mm-hmm. and um, online specifically and, and seeing reactions to some of these stories that would come out in France or, mm-hmm. you know, a certain panel discussion on television and seeing how people, specifically women, were reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I just started, you know, again, once you start peeling those layers, you can't, you can't stop. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. you really can just sort of dive into all the things that you you probably were you know aware of to some degree if mm-hmm. someone were to to question you about it you you might say oh yeah you know it's true that this you know coverage leans one way um but there are blind spots yeah, and so once you start seeing it it's all you can see yeah. and um and that's where i realized the extent to which women here felt extremely frustrated and mm-hmm. hurt i mean it's it's like you know, when you think about how individuals develop their self self worth, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're used to seeing some semblance of ourselves represented sure. to us. Um, there are other other ways in which I don't feel I'm represented, but you know, those are not necessarily the most obvious yeah. ways. But a lot of these women, if they are from immigrant families, if they are um, you know, disabled, mm-hmm. if they are gay or queer or however they might identify, you're, you're looking at, you know, never seeing themselves and also realizing that people um, are happy for them to be invisible. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And that invisibility is problematic as well. Oh. Because you can never really belong in a way, I guess. So that's one of the things that came to mind when thinking about that, again, that genre of like how to live like a Parisienne. Yeah. It's always how to live like. It's yes. never sort of how to become. And one of the things that's very refreshing about your book is that, I mean, there are so many of the women in this book were not born in Paris. A exactly. lot of them were not born in France. And yet there's something, even though, you know, and we, we spent a few minutes talking about some of the problems in the city, there's also clearly something about it which has allowed them to to, to put down roots here and to, and to make successes of their life. Completely. I mean, it's, it's sort of a paradoxical because it's a city where certainly there's the most opportunity in France, you mm-hmm. would argue. 
Um, and it is a, an extremely creative capital. Um, you know, the artistic and um, uh, creative history of the city sort of lends itself to all sorts of new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it's, it's, it might be easier to sort of get in initially, but then ascending within that system is where it becomes challenging or finding your belonging within that system. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I mean, I'm not, um, again, I'm, I'm also like you, we weren't born here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Americans are usually, uh, pretty well received, at least in, in recent sure. years. Um, but that doesn't mean you belong either. I right. mean, there's always this like, you know, suspicion. Um, and I, and, and when you think about where that might come from, it's, it's like, it, I think it goes back to what I talk about in the beginning, which is their sense of national identity. Uh-huh. And it's like, they know they have a global city. I think on, mm-hmm. on paper, they understand that that's a, an asset, but they don't behave necessarily right. or treat everyone as though, you know, this is part of a global, mm-hmm. you know, a, a global vision for France in the bigger world. Um, and, you know, and that connects with the, the issue of universalism as well and uh-huh. how well, this they've is got a, these great ideals, but... Uh, well, this was the thing I was going to just come on to talk to before we finally get around to talking about the specific women in the book, is that uh, readers may be surprised when they open it. You have your introduction, mm-hmm. and then you have a cultural primer. Yeah. And I think probably one of the things that we in the West anyway, lazily assume about other Western countries is that we're broadly on the same page culturally. And I mean, I think it's over the kind of the last few years, it's become increasingly clear, for example, to a lot of British people, how a lot of things in, for example, the United States work very, very differently, yeah. uh, whether that be around healthcare or guns or things like that. And yet I think it's a lot of people probably don't realise that there are certain fundamental values about the way not only society is run, but how certain issues are addressed yes. in uh, in France. And we're seeing that, I mean, this is sort of extremely timely, not, wasn't planned this way, but obviously in the last month we've seen an eruption of racial, relation, race relation movements and, and uh, against police violence. And, you know, there's been a lot of pushback within the French elite, I would say, the mm-hmm. French, even some of the, I would say, not even, you know, fully left-leaning but mm-hmm. um sort of across the spectrum of political alliances i've seen different different remarks or i've heard different remarks that that have really stayed with me which is this assumption that somehow we're importing mm-hmm. an american um well an americanization of politics uh-huh. of of uh identity mm-hmm. um and and that i think is a way to to say, well, we don't need to go in this direction uh-huh. because that's not our history, except the histories are actually quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. quite similar. Um, and, and I, and, and it, I think that was one of the things that sort of with the women I spoke to in the book who have already made themselves experts in these areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about Roque Diallo and a lot of the activists, they, they understand this history yeah, intimately. Yeah. Um, and the, and what's interesting about this particular time is that finally more people are echoing sort of the the alarm bells that they uh-huh. can, cont- you know, that they've always been ringing. Um, and the government is still the government or, you know, the elite or whoever mm-hmm. is reacting with the denialism that we sort of have always expected. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's getting harder to maintain. I mm-hmm. think everyday voices are, are becoming louder. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting about this time is that, you know, when I when I spoke to Hokayat about the issues she's constantly mm-hmm. um, fighting against, um, and I think about how much she's trolled and vilified. Well, let's let's talk about her, her okay. particularly the yeah. So her. she's an an anti racist activist, a journalist, a documentary filmmaker, mm-hmm. and you know there are other individuals who fight the same fight, mm-hmm. but she is certainly the most um, media friendly, mm-hmm. um, and she's on television, she's on radio, so her voice is widely known, but. Mm-hmm. Among media friendly is an interesting way to. I was it. going to say mediatize, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, which we don't we don't say you know heavily sure, mediatized. Yeah, yeah. I mean she's in the public. Uh-huh. She's in the public eye. Because I, 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 say, I, yeah, I, no. I pick up on it just because that does seem to be a bit of a sort of attritional relationship between. You're, her you're right. I mean, I meant that you know she's media friendly in, in a sense that actually she's um, forever welcome on mm-hmm. on these platforms actually, yeah. um, and and she handles herself with such grace and composure. Um, 
And I say that because she is attacked left and right. She's never given a word in edgewise. You know, she really has to fight to be heard. And, 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 and what initially just as I was watching, you know, her fight fires on Twitter and on television before we spoke for the book, what, what astounded me was that none of her arguments seemed particularly controversial Uh to me. Um, were she to be in the States, I don't think sure. we would, you know, most people wouldn't even be reacting. Yeah. Um, but again, she is the one who sort of highlighted to me this history of both denialism and amnesia. So uh-huh. it's like a willful amnesia. They they choose to remember the French, I say. They, they choose to remember um, abolition. Mm-hmm. They choose to remember very key aspects of their history um, and leave the rest to be you know, relics of the past that aren't properly addressed. So they're not addressed in school. They're not addressed openly Mm. on television. So every time she brings them up as a reason for, you know, these are these unaddressed um, and untreated wounds, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, it was was still a collective trauma that was not actually properly handled and is influencing or impacting the way people live their lives today. Mm -hmm. And so what she is essentially saying is that because this isn't even being handled now, there's a refusal to see the discriminations that exist and how that might be problematic for the people who feel continually oppressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so just someone like that who, you know, has to go to great lengths to make herself heard. Um, and, and, and the, and the heat that she gets in uh-huh. return is just still astounding and to enormously me. Enormously disingenuous as well. That's a thing. Absolutely. I mean, the thing you mentioned earlier about this idea, okay, that's not how we, talk about things in France yes as if sort of each culture is this sort of hermetic thing as if sort of French feminism didn't then influence American feminism which exactly as if hasn't always been this exchange and and it's true there are there are, you know there's a context that is very different mm-hmm. I mean as, as bad as things look in America there is still much more open dialogue on these issues um, yeah. it may may some you know it may make a whole bunch of people uncomfortable but it's not that this has never been out in the open. Yeah. In France, it's almost like, you know, we're trying to push through a door, mm-hmm. um, and finally the door is creaking open, and yes, people are still uncomfortable and they're resisting this discussion, but I think this might be a moment where finally we don't close the door again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just, you know, there have been other anti-racist movements um, in the past that have been hugely successful that, you know, many people forget. Yeah. Um, I want to say it was in 1983, so I'm not sure about that date. But you know, there's a hundred thousand, uh, hundred thousand people turned out for this anti-racist demonstration mm-hmm. all those years ago. Um, and it's very easy for them to forget that that this is this is not a new feeling mm-hmm. among people. Now there's a great focus on, um, you know, the the Afro uh, black community because mm-hmm. you know there are. Caribbeans, there are Africans, there are, you know, of, individuals of all backgrounds who are living in France. So it is a different yeah. sort of context than in the U.S. But this is the it's sort of like the second wave, I think, uh, of what needed to happen. We should, I suppose, we should sort of just unpack that idea of um, why it's so difficult to talk about it in France. And I mean, so you, 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 one of the things in, in the cultural primer is this idea of uh, communitarism. Oh. Which I remember as sort of as ten years as a uh, language teacher, I never settled on a decent translation of that. I see, I see you went for communalism, which is a word yeah. that I hadn't come across. I've seen it in a, sort of referenced in a number of ways, but essentially, it's a it's a pejorative way of referring to sort of multiculturalism. Yeah. That's sort of the and simplest pejorative. Always pejorative. Always pejorative. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a simplistic version, but. You know, essentially, there's the idea. You know, if in the states, or even in, I would imagine in in the UK, mm-hmm. um, if there's an embrace of different aspects of one's identity, that you could be um, Indian American, you could be Muslim American, uh-huh. you could be Jewish American, you could be African American, and still a hundred percent American. Yeah. I mean, you can have multiple identities and still be part of sort of the same, you know, national goal. You mm-hmm. know, be be back in the same national yeah. vision. Um, in France, it is you are French before you are anything uh-huh. else, um, and I do think after you know speaking with lots of individuals who have very strong feelings mm-hmm. on this on this issue, I do think that that's a really noble mm-hmm. sure. ambition. Yeah, uh, that everyone should be treated equally under the you know under the republic, mm-hmm. and 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 that there is less of a need to 
distinguish yourself by these other traits, mm-hmm. but in practice it it's not working. Uh-huh. Um, and then because this is so protected and it is elevated as sort of the founding principle, if you do not, you know, if you're sort of saying, but hey, wait a minute, uh, I don't feel like I'm treated like I'm French, mm-hmm. even though I'm born here, you know, or, or my skin color isn't, you know, porcelain white, you know, how, where do I fit into this uh-huh. discussion? Um, and that's where the resistance comes. Yeah. Because then they're said to be sort of highlighting or celebrate, not celebrating, but highlighting and putting emphasis on areas that, that shouldn't be part of the conversation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so yeah, if yeah. someone who is um, French Muslim and says, you know, uh, you know they, they start gathering in a Muslim community, mm-hmm. trying to fight for, for their own rights or to be treated differently, that would be called communitarist uh-huh. because they are gathering and, and being part of a group that is seen as a threat to the Republic. Mm-hmm. And so Macron has most recently said things, even in his uh, national addresses, to this effect where, you know, the, the biggest threat to the fight, the anti-racist fight, he says, is, mm-hmm. you know, these sort of separatist groups, which right. I think is an incredible word for him yeah. to use. Um, but he looks at this, uh, you know, these different groups or f- factions mm-hmm. as though, I mean, I think that's the way they look at them, as being a source of division mm-hmm. within the country. And and that's where I struggle with it because, you know, they it, it feels like this willful um, refusal to acknowledge what discriminations might exist. Yeah. And there's also that, I'm going to use that word again, disingenuous, because, for example, when we talk about the, the treatment of women in French society, yeah. um, I mean, that's something that Macron was particularly vocal on when, well, before the election and soon after he was elected. But like it, it doesn't seem that doesn't seem to provoke a kind of cognitive dissonance to say women are completely equal on, in the eyes of the law, and yet it's clear that they are not treated equally with regards recruitment, with regards harassment in the street. That idea seems to be something which can at least be accepted. Now I will come on to talk about whether it's something which is appropriately addressed, um, and yet it just seems odd that a similar sort of logic cannot be applied to. When you're talking about race, it's very easy for them to to turn a blind eye. I mean, or just brush under the rug. I mean, mm-hmm. these are just painful issues they don't want to have to address yeah. because I think they're afraid of opening that that box. Mm-hmm. You know, it was even with regard to the Jewish community, and even the fact that I'm saying community is uh, like a very American thing because they would never, you know, they really bristle at the idea of saying, you know, in community. Mm-hmm. Juive ou autre, you know, they wouldn't say that yeah, because that's yeah. communitarist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to say it. Um, but you know, the the um, the virulent anti-Semitic, um, or sort of the 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 measures in place to combat anti-Semitic behavior and speech, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's essentially a result of needing to answer for. This, the country's ills during the war. Yeah. I mean, so it's not that they haven't done this in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're sort of, you know, if that's the thinking, if you, you know, if you take that issue extremely seriously, well, then you need to take all of them seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and that creates actually quite a lot of, um, I would say, frustration and anger within other aspects of the population. Uh-huh. So I know this comes up in conversation also with... Um, uh, some of the women in the book about how you know the, a lot of the Muslim French Muslims feel that you know they aren't given the same protections mm-hmm. or um, uh, concern to a degree as the Jewish community is offered. Uh. So the fact that there are you know armed guards in front of synagogues and in front of Jewish schools, um, but no such protections are really ever in place for their religious mm-hmm. institutions and schools. Um, you know, all of these are really sore points. And I think that, you know, it's understandable if you feel already ostracized within the larger community, mm-hmm. within the larger, you know, national context, and you're seeing this sort of what could be construed as like preferential treatment, uh-huh. essentially. And so because the government doesn't fix this and keeps hiding behind or, or at least masking the issue with um, with this idea of, you know, universalism and we don't, we don't uh, pull figures on on race, ethnicity, mm-hmm. and religion, et cetera, et cetera. From the outside, it still looks like this is being done haphazardly. Yeah, that yeah, this yeah. is not an equal treatment. Mm-hmm. So, fix it. Yeah, you know, and 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 that's essentially what these women are arguing. And and I wouldn't say that they're all, 
you know, militant activists. Mm. You know, there's a there's a chapter on activists, but and it's some, the first chapter. It is well, the first. It is the first chapter. Accidental. I'm no, sure. no, no. It's sort of start on a start out strong, um, which is not to say that others aren't strong, sure. but you know, I think it it lays the groundwork for some mm-hmm. of the biggest issues. Yeah. Um, and then what I think is interesting is how some of the other women throughout the book, without ever identifying as, you know, a hardcore feminist mm-hmm. or, you know, a, a card-carrying anti-racist activist, they're expressing those same values mm-hmm. or their sa- the same concerns yeah. on certain yeah, issues. Yeah. And I think that was, was, was what was most fascinating to me was, you know, if you get them talking, mm-hmm. um, if you get a lot of people talking, they sort of feel the same pain yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and same desire to make things better. Yeah. It's interesting you say about not describing themselves as a hardcore feminist because one thing that surprised me when I first moved here, and I think it has changed in the intervening years, but it's still an interesting, um, again, difference, I guess, with how things are in the Anglo-Stone world, is the, the kind of odd taboo around the word feminist. Yeah. Um, which is sort of, you know, I, I, I would talk with people and they, they would say, oh, no, they'd be very quick to reassure you that they were not a feminist. You know, they were, they, they might be campaigning for, you know, certain, uh, uh, rights issues or something, but, but just, just to be clear, I'm not a feminist. There seemed to be this sort of almost militant sort of, uh, I, I, I well, maybe you can explain it more. Well, you know, you. I think that term globally was problematic a time and mm-hmm. i think that's because well first of all there's no one way to express one's feminism sure. I, I i think that's one of the messages i really learned also from these women was that you know yes there's there's still a dominant feminist ideology mm-hmm. which is universalist what a surprise this idea that all you know women no matter what their background might be they are all fighting mm-hmm. against the same oppression mm-hmm. which just simply isn't true Mm -hmm. so i don't identify with that kind of feminism um intersectional feminism um you know which sort of takes into account all of the various oppressions that you know a woman might might be facing Mm -hmm. um simultaneously um and that that needs to be taken into consideration when you're considering policy when Mm -hmm. you're considering how far we still have to go and um and the way that we gather um that feels still very much like the the necessary focus within Uh at least within the french context Um, i think i remember reading articles um with lauren bestide actually who's in the book but with the uk press Mm -hmm. and they had a little bit more resistance to the idea of intersectionalism as though maybe they had moved on to some other form of feminism Uh but the point being you know i've named two sort of key uh categories of feminism but you know there are people who don't identify with either, but mm-hmm. still have their own beliefs. So the idea that there's this monolithic feminism is already sort of a problem. And I think that that's how it was perceived mm-hmm. or communicated for a very long time. And then, you know, the press has done a very good job um, in the past of making it look like feminism or feminists were man-hating, uh-huh. right? And that's a really hard uh, discourse to break because actually feminists would almost all I mean, almost all feminists would argue that what we're looking for is equality. Sure. Um, and, and for that to be, you know, and for men to be involved in mm-hmm. this as well. Um, but, you know, you let the media do what they're going to do, mm-hmm. and it's a very hard um, image to break. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's part of it. I think that's why, you know, you, you might have conversations like that where someone says, but I'm not a feminist. Uh-huh. I do think that's changing, though. Yeah. yeah I think yeah, I because think. of you know, the youth who are getting involved in mm-hmm. these movements because of social media. I mean, we can say what we want about all of its ills, but there's there's a real power um, in getting these messages out now and reaching young people who mm-hmm. might not have, you know, actively taken an interest in learning about them, but you can reach them because they realize that they are concerned by those yeah. issues. And certain ideas from around the world are sort of arrive unfiltered. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, if you don't necessarily... You know, if you're 15 years old and you don't read the newspaper, mm-hmm. but you spend a lot of time online, well, that's a real opportunity to to reach different voices and the, and, and the, the young people who are going to carry this movement forward. So I think it's been sort of reappropriated, yeah. the yeah, word. Yeah. Um, and I was just talking with a, a friend of mine the other day who, who said he he doesn't know that if, if he would call himself a feminist, but he's certainly pro-women and pro-feminism. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, maybe there's like some something in terms of branding that needs to be uh-huh. done, you know, for more men to, to realize that this is sort of everyone's yeah. battle. Yeah. Um, but I do think the taboo is is starting to fade a bit. Yeah, again, maybe connected to that sort of that that social loosening, which uh, yeah. you know, certain sort of dramatic or <laughs> sort of revolutionary events can uh, can provoke. Well, something has to make it happen. Um, I, I, it's difficult, I think, to talk about. Uh, the sort of specific people in the book because there's firstly there's a lot of them yes <laughs> and each one we could talk about for about an hour I mean there's such sort of fascinating characters they're all coming from different perspectives different backgrounds um, so there's a few that I'm going to shine a bit of a yeah, light yeah. on yeah yeah please um, do but you know I just want to say to, to people listening that sort of this will in, in a sense be in no way representative because it's such a sort of disparate selection in a way um, but one thing that did strike me that unites a lot of the women in the book is the word and. Like, when you say what they do... How interesting. It will be, it will be activist and, you know, pâtissier or something like yeah. that. And it, it seemed, it, do you think there is, a, is something about, sort of, that, that does unite these women is that there's, they're not just sort of focused on one particular activity. There's something sort of more... I don't know, maybe, maybe it's the struggle, maybe that's talking to you generally. I have to say you're the first person to ask anything like that, and uh, so it's exci- an exciting question because I don't know that I even realized that that was one of the biggest links between mm. all of them, but you're absolutely right now that you're saying it. Um, I think, so there's an, es- an essay or sort of commentary section in the book about motherhood, mm-hmm. and when I was digging into sort of, you know, what makes... The, the prospect of, of mothering or not mothering mm-hmm. so different here versus elsewhere, it was this idea that that does not make them women. Right. They, don't be, yeah. they don't suddenly lose the rest of their identity. And I think that goes, that connects with what you're, mm. you're asking. I think there's this sort of sense that, well, why would I need to be reduced to one, one thing? So yeah. interesting yeah, yeah, when yeah. you consider the way that the, the country wants you to just associate yourself with being French, but... Obviously, yeah. we're, we're, we're much more nuanced and we're, we're much richer than that. Um, and so you're right. I think there's this idea that, well, I'm never going to be just a baker. I have a past. I have mm-hmm. a future. And, and I have opinions. And I want to be identified yeah. as such. I wonder, this is going to be massively speculative. But just as you were talking, it made me think that I wonder if that idea, that kind of sort of division of labor kind of thing that Mm -hmm. you can only be one thing Mm -hmm. and one thing well is a very sort of again sort of anglo-american way to think about it in a way because you know these were the countries that gave us sort of the industrial revolution and capitalism and that sort of yeah division of labor and maybe you know capitalism isn't something which has ever really fit with france no no and i would also say that it's sort of you know we know uh how how much france likes to you know, put people neatly into to boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even even us as as foreigners, you know, at some point we filled out a form and had to check one box, and you know, it doesn't quite work so well. Sure. And so yeah, this yeah. is almost like a way to say, well, I can't be put in a box. Uh-huh. You know, what don't if, try to contain me. One of the one of the women in the book that seemed to encapsulate that for me was uh, Sarah Uchemun. Yes. The, so she, well, maybe you introduce her. So she is a uh, professional boxer. She won the silver. Uh, Olympic silver medal mm. in Rio after having competed in I want to say was it Beijing I'm, I'm already now yes. having okay so yeah, the yeah. year before she missed London right, right she yeah. missed London and so Beijing she unfortunately didn't qualify or she didn't she didn't um, place yeah. uh, and you know she was in her I guess late 20s early 30s at that point and you know she was told that her career was over mm-hmm. essentially um she went to have a first child and they said there's no way you're coming back after mm-hmm. this you know due to oh your body has changed too dramatically um you'll never sort of train enough to get back to your physical strength or stamina mm-hmm. um and you'd be competing against young women who have you know have have not gone through something like that yeah. um and so she had to jump through I mean, countless hurdles to even be taken seriously. And they did make her compete against sort of the mm. young group of uh, potential uh, of the boxers who were going to potentially go on to represent France. And mm. she beat them. I mean, she really had to show them. And, and her feeling was like, you know, women are always having to prove themselves. Uh-huh. So this was just yet another example where I had to prove myself. 
but she, you know, she trained, she said it was difficult, but that actually she found that, you know, being a mother had changed her focus Mm -hmm. for the better. You know, she had less time to train and she was more efficient in that time, in that window. Um, And I think there was probably a sense of, you know, drive to show her daughter that she could do this just Um, that kind of analysis um that you gave from that that, that was sort of projected onto her was like oh you probably wouldn't be able to do it after what you've been through yeah that just sounds and i say this as a man but like you could you could hear a man's voice saying that oh 100 it's similar things that happened to serena williams for example just this idea that there's something about motherhood which will and then that you are physically incapacitated. Exactly. You else. are damaged goods. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and she was like, that is not going to be my story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so long story short, she goes and competes and she wins the silver medal. And in between uh, when she was training, she did go to get her master's and um, wanted to be involved in boxing in a different mm-hmm. way and athletics in general. And so she does have her own boxing gym, mm-hmm. which is great because there's a whole component where... Um, People who just want to learn to box for as a hobby, you know, there's a space where they can bring their kids so they don't have to worry about, you know, trying to find care. I yeah. mean, it's supposed to be sort of a multi-purpose center, um, you know, and getting companies to come in and, and have that experience together. Um, and she's still on advising committees for, you know, the future Olympics mm-hmm. um, and also working toward greater diversity yeah, yeah, and yeah. parity in sports because it is, unfortunately, the way she put it was just like, you know, They'll put women on just to, to fill that box and have no intention of actually listening to them. Uh-huh. Um, and that's what we're, we, I say we as women, are, are sort of working against. It's like we don't want to be the, you know, we don't want to support tokenism. Uh-huh. We really want things to change. Yeah, so, like, yeah, yeah. let us be part of that. Um, but, again, in sports, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise that it's still very much male-dominated, yeah. even in the sort of management um, and advising level. Mm-hmm. Um and interesting that you bring up Serena Williams because we talked during that interview about um, there were periods um, in boxing where there was this, a similar discussion as in tennis about mm-hmm. the uniforms, you know. And so yes, skirts. I, I didn't. I mean, I read that my jaw almost hit the floor. Yeah. No. I mean, it's absolutely astounding. And and if you look today again, Roland Garros. Mm-hmm. And the organizers are the ones who are giving Serena Williams trouble about sure. her her what do we call those like the the ensemble that's also meant for her health, uh-huh. you know, because she almost died during childbirth. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a, I guess it's supposed to be for circulation. But anyway, point being, you know, controlling women's bodies, mm-hmm. it's never ending. Yeah. So in sports, you know, you can see how that is amplified. Yeah. And just, I mean, just as a quick aside, um, you, you said like she, she went and did her master's and she went and did her master's at Sciences Po. One yes, of the, sort of, yes. One of the best uh, sort of political business schools in in the country as well. Absolutely. I mean, she really um, gave herself, you know, and and I also was really interested by her comment about, you know, I asked her, you know, when you were a kid, did you, did you think you would do this professionally full time? And she said, Mm -hmm. well, it didn't feel possible. Mm -hmm. And up to a certain point, female boxers were not even allowed. I mean, there Mm -hmm. was a time, it's not that old of a professional sport. Um, And so she's like, education still needed to be very much priority. I mean, also, you don't box until you're 60 years old, so sure. you do need to have something to fall back on. But I think she had a certain sense very young mm-hmm. that she was going to do more than one thing anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this was a big passion, and clearly she had talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I really that really struck me, and you know, that's what she's instilling in her children. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly what was interesting during confinement is she was almost every day posting sort of simple medium level uh medium difficulty and intermediate workouts um that she clearly filmed from her home but Uh you know just to just to say like you know you can do this um and even some that were meant for seniors um, which i think i don't know i I think she's really trying to tackle fitness and Mm well-being and um and how to sort of make that integral part of your life without it you know feeling intimidating yeah yeah yeah. um i'd like to talk a little bit about the um the the, the selection of the women yeah because obviously i mean there are people people like her also people like anne hidalgo or leila slimani who people will have people will have probably heard of and who have quite a public profile and then there are other women who i mean the one uh that just comes to mind um who most people probably wouldn't have heard of is uh the woman who runs la maison des femmes oh yeah uh, dr gada hatem ganser yes and 
I'm just curious about your yeah your process of, right. of selecting. So when I started, I I knew that I needed to cover a lot of ground. I needed this to be as reflective of the population as possible, mm-hmm. um, still being you know very inspirational yeah, to yeah, a degree. Yeah. Um, and one way of doing that was to try to incorporate as many professions as I could mm-hmm. that made sense that. You know, wasn't going to make this into an encyclopedia either. Um, and it was very important for me to get to 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 include a doctor. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing some research about, you know, doctors who have also done things, you know, for women or women's rights, she was constantly uh-huh. coming up. Um, and of course, now I see her everywhere. Sure. And um, you know, but this is now in two, early two thousand eighteen, and I hadn't been as familiar with her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I started looking into her her background and what she had already accomplished. I mean, it was it was extraordinary. extraordinary. Yeah. And you know, I included so her family justice center, which is called La Maison des Femmes, is in Saint Denis. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's part of Greater Paris, sure. um, and that's why I included it because you know a lot of these women are from the suburbs or they're from or even now they live just outside of the city. Mm-hmm. And as there's been a push to make those sort of, um, uh, those neighborhoods and those districts part of Paris, I figured that's how I was going to yeah, also yeah. extend um, sort of the, the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so her, her center welcomes women uh, from Saint-Denis who in many cases have been abused, have been victims of sexual assault and mm-hmm. rape, who... Um, may not have access to contraception, Mm -hmm. uh, may not have have ever consulted a physician um, when it comes to reproductive health, Mm -hmm. Um, and even some women who have been um, pregnant and never saw a doctor up until, you know, sort of late term. It seems to me like it's almost the last hope Mm -hmm. for a lot of women. Um, and so, you know, hearing her about her career and how she had worked in maternity and she had, she'd uncut, you know, she'd been part of sort of women's journey at mm-hmm. various stages, but this obviously is the hardest, uh, thing that she's done. Um, and I don't, you know, I try to put myself in her shoes and think about bringing home some of these stories, these horrific stories at night. And, you know, her, her reaction was like, it is hard, but you mm-hmm. know, I've, I've now raised my kids, you know, I'm not, it doesn't interfere with that aspect of coming home at night and uh you know now i can give my attention and my time to other people so Mm -hmm. it was you know just the the sort of altruistic and 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 very giving nature of this woman um you know you meet her and you just feel like you're in safe hands yeah yeah yeah. and not just i mean she has a team but but ultimately there's something that just struck me as so powerful about Mm -hmm. her and also that she has to sort of raise all this fund funding herself Yeah, yeah um and she's brought on some pretty big people to help mm. with that. Ina Moja, who's in the book as well, has um, helped to raise money with her mm-hmm. um, for the center. But I believe she's even had uh, Juliette Binoche at uh-huh. one point. You know, so there are a lot of high-profile women who are, you know, showing their support for for her work. Um, and yet, what really is needed is like re- sustained regional uh-huh. and municipal support. So yeah. And it's interesting to send you mentioned sort of like it, 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 this sort of the, the concept of power and of course regional municipal support. One of your it's probably actually the only thing in the book which is ever so slightly out of date because we've recently had the uh, municipal election. Yes. I mean, luckily for your book, Anne Hidalgo she was did, re-elected. She won, yes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you obviously you you talk about the the upcoming elections and the end of her first term, and now we're uh, entering her her um, her second term. Um, when we were talking about Rokia Diallo earlier, you said about the sort of the vitriol mm-hmm. that she receives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably alongside her, Anne Hidalgo oh. probably receives oh. an almost equivalent amount. I mean, treacherous. I mean, her her uh, being being one of those women on the internet is. I mean, and not uh-huh. just not just the internet, but being a woman in the public eye, uh-huh. and you're doing things that may be construed as controversial, forget it. You're mm-hmm. a punching bag, essentially. There, there does seem to be a, a particular brand of hatred, I guess, yeah. reserved yeah. for women yep. who speak out, I guess. I mean, you see the same thing in the United States with AOC mm-hmm. and the women, you know, the young uh, women of the House that were elected. I mean, look at Hillary Clinton. Sure. I mean, these women are 
And it and it's a particular hatred that we almost don't target to men. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. No, it's not. Um, you know, you're not going to, th- I mean, in theory, threaten on on Twitter the lives of, you know, a male senator's family, his children, mm-hmm. and you're not going to say you hope he, you know, something horrific, um, some horrific sexual assault will will you know happen to him. Yeah. Um, like it's a particular a particular breed of i mean just unabashed hatred yeah 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 and and it, and i can imagine how if you are not if you do not have a certain um sense of composure um you know strong mental health i mean that could that could destroy you yeah 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 and yet i i, I was thinking when reading your interview with anadalgo that uh, one thing that has been talked about during the recent pandemic is that it seems that countries run by women have tended to do to have fewer deaths and to, yeah. to have managed the pandemic better. Now, I heard um, uh, a journalist talking about the two possible interpretations of that, both of which, to you know, a, a non-expert like me, <laughs> seem, seem quite pertinent. Um, one is that sort of there there might be something uh, about the way that women as politicians operate mm-hmm. that is perhaps more more consensual, more compassionate than a lot of male politicians. The other one is that in order to become a high-ranking uh, woman politician, you have to prove your excellence in a way that men don't. I know a lot of mediocre men become powerful. Yep. Yep. Very few mediocre women do. I, 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 would, I would say that the, both of those are probably true. Mm-hmm. I mean, she obviously was fighting during the pandemic to, or even during confinement to, for the government to allow her to reopen the parks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where it gets a little bit confusing as to who controls what, you know, who makes which decisions in, in Ile-de-France and in Paris. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not always what you think, uh-huh. you know, so there's some hatred and anger that's directed toward her when it's actually, you know, Macron. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. we know that she and Macron do not get along. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not surprising that this was sort of like almost could have been a vindictive move mm. of no we're not going to open the parks yeah, even yeah. though you know for for most of us living in paris it seemed like so you would rather have people congregating closely on the canal and in places you know so this was just after confinement mm. lifted you know but there were the parks were still closed yeah, yeah. so you know and she's saying it's hot because we did have a lot of that extremely warm weather yeah, yeah. um people are congregating closely why not let them go into the parks where they can spread out and they get air, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. you know, from a health perspective, it actually seemed to make quite a lot of sense yeah, yeah, and they yeah. wouldn't let her. Um, so, you know, but she managed to do what we've now seen as, you know, like a bike highway, adding uh-huh. 50 kilometers of bike lanes. And Which she is going to stay, aren't they? Let's face it. I mean, they are going to stay. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I don't think in her, in like, in her long-term strategy, this was going to be a, you know, okay, in September, we're going to, cover up those those nice yellow uh-huh. <laughs> bike paths that we've created um so w- what i think is a pro- problematic is that already you're in a position where people are going to be extra um skeptical of mm-hmm. you in these positions yeah. but you also have to you know sh- sh- like hold your ground you have mm-hmm. to be committed you have to have convictions yeah so it almost seems like you're damned if you're doing and you're damned if you don't yeah, um, sure. but i do think that she is trying and what doesn't help is when people don't really understand where she has jurisdiction and mm-hmm. where she doesn't yeah um and you know you see a lot of anger that's just completely misdirected because of that yeah um but in this case i think you know already the election the, the municipal election had three female front runners so you know it's important for what that might signal in 2022 mm-hmm. You've got very strong um, candidates who could potentially then run for president. And as we've seen, you know, that trickled into a whole number of other cities Mm -hmm. in France. Um, So it's not enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the fact that she won again and that um, it's also, you know, I think think Paris at least needs someone who's thinking of these social services. Um, I think that's good. And I think in in a way there's something um, interesting beyond the fact that she is managing the city it's kind of her her vision for the city because there's a there's a couple of people in the book that i think of her and i think of uh, alice cabaret mm-hmm. who are actually sort of concerned with how the city functions and yeah. i guess how particularly how it is for women to move through the city and this is something which again has got 
quite a bit of press over the last few years about what, what it, you know, how safely, how uh, sort of peacefully women are able to move through Paris or not. Yeah. Um, and to, to the point where, you know, it had to be kind of, there had to be ad campaigns pointing out that it's, it's not okay to, to, sh to shout vulgarities to women in the yeah. street, that it's not okay to, you know, to grab women when they go past you and things like that. Um, and I thought it's, yeah, it's sort of in, in reading yeah, about Anne Hidalgo and Alice Caparet, I see just that idea of actually, yeah, there could be sort of, this could be the moment where there are some sort of structural changes to yes. the way the city is organised and the way the city is designed. Yeah. That could be particularly liberating for women. I mean, I would say that, you know, one thing that um, Alice Caparet talks about a lot more uh, is, is the issue of accessibility. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that that has been approved upon enough mm -hmm. um, since Hidalgo you yeah, know, yeah, has yeah. been in office. So, you know, she's made a lot of wonderful improvements, mm -hmm. um, but there are some areas that still, to me, seem like... Blind spots. Oh, huge or just not priority when they uh -huh. really need to be because you know if you think about already you know women like Elisa Hojas who's also in the mm. book who talks about you know she can't freely navigate the city so it really requires the infrastructure to to be set up in such a way that she can at least have slightly more mobility within mm. her you know I mean she's in a wheelchair but it's it, the, the sidewalks are all you know you've yeah, yeah, yeah. you walk down the streets of Paris and you can see how, you know, there's no consistency in, uh, in the, in the material that's used for the yeah. sidewalks and you don't have ramps. Um, and that and, seemed to be overlooked in the deconfinement as oh. well. It's wonderful that restaurants have these kind of expanded terraces, but mm. imagine if you have, if you're in a wheelchair, if you have a buggy, even these kind of. Yeah, no, things. I mean, there's so, yeah. so it's an imperfect system right uh, now and, and there are improvements to be made but you know that's where you have to ask the question okay so you're having more women involved in some of these decisions um, but is there you know an advising committee or you know consultants who mm -hmm. might be able to feed in on the you know how difficult it is for the disabled um, yeah. you know so there are things she's not perfect no mm -hmm. one is perfect sure. obviously um, but I would say that you know there's a lot that I think I'm eager to see in yeah. her second yeah, yeah. term and hope that improvements will be made mm. and I think probably having the Olympics in 2024 is a big deadline uh, is a big goal yeah, yeah. for her yeah um, one of the areas I think um, that, that struck me where the sort of that a lot of uh, the women you speak to sort of move in is the area of I guess new media and tech it's quite a kind of a, a broad thing I think of uh, Laurent Bastide with La Poudre and uh -huh. how she talks about how like she essentially had you know, she was the editor-in-chief of Elle magazine yeah. and because of the way the, the magazine was structured and the, the expectations of her, she essentially had to quit and set up her own production company and now produces La Poudre, which is one of the, I think, one of the best uh, podcasts in France, in French, but also, yeah, they have some episodes, episodes in English yep, as well. in English, yeah. Um, obviously, uh, Rocaille Diallo um, is a contributor and a presenter of several podcasts. Um there's a uh, Sarah Suke, who, uh -huh. the inventor of the Text a Day app. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Rahaf Hafouche, who I must admit, this is one, one thing, and this is this is my own tech illiteracy. I couldn't quite figure out what she doesn't in tech. She seems to do something very <laughs> significant and very important, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. But I'm just curious to hear, like, do you think there's a something? in these kind of new media and the tech world, which we often think of as quite sort of uh, dominated by kind of tech yeah. bros yep. and things like that, where women and particularly Parisian women are finding some flexibility in space. Yeah, I, I think perhaps it might even be slightly less of an intense bro culture than in, in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be because, you know, the the community is a bit younger here. Sure. Um and also the way that when it developed, there was a real emphasis on including women into the mix mm -hmm. um, and and recruiting them. I mean, there are women engineers, there are women coders, mm -hmm. um, and in France you have programs for for you know people to go and learn how to code. Um, and then it helps also that with Station F you have Roxanne Varza, who's mm -hmm. the you know the director, yeah. um, and and brings you know her expertise and her background to the table mm -hmm. in a very visible way. Um, so I think that also helps 
create a, um, a landscape where other women who are interested in these areas feel like, okay, I can actually, uh, I can pursue these fields. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it still remains relatively young. I mean, mm -hmm. I think most of the women in these areas are under 40. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I don't know how... I, that's why I say I think it's a real more recent phenomenon. Sure. Um, but, you know, the fact that Kat Borlingon, mm -hmm. who uh, is the director of French Tech, um, which is associated with the government. I mean, it is yeah. a, a governmental project. Um, you know, and she is not only, you know, Filipino, female, has you know, has a background that's extremely diverse in you know, re Reporters Without Borders, mm. and she's been educated in Canada. And I think that what's good about the scene in Paris is that they're looking for people who have that international focus. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these women match that and, and, and can offer that. Um, because as, as Kat actually talks about in the book, you you want companies that are thinking globally first, not... Mm -hmm. Franco-Francais, and then they and then they try to adapt. So you know, having leadership, you know, whether it's her or having consultants like Rahaf mm. who can come in and say, you know, this is how you can actually take this and and, and take it further. Oh, that's what she does. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like it's digital consulting. It's um, you know, she's. I mean, I would say she's a thought leader in everything uh -huh. that involves you know artificial intelligence and big data and 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 just digital culture. So that yeah, might be yeah. the way we work mm -hmm. within. Digital, okay. the digital space um but you know all of them are are bringing their expertise to companies and potentially startups mm -hmm. who need to figure out how to to make things work or grow and yeah, yeah. uh and so it's i think it's important that we have some of these women who are going to start showing the way for other women mm -hmm. now i'm gonna have to let you go quite soon because we've been <laughs> nattering for about an hour now I, don't, I, you know, I could go on two hours more because there's so much great stuff in this book but two things that i think do need to be mentioned uh, and often, particularly in books like this, they often get overlooked. Um, of course, there's your words, there's the interviews, but there's also the pictures. Mm -hmm. And you worked with a, a photographer. Yes. An extraordinary photographer. Like, I don't know if people can uh, see some of the photos online. They can. Okay. Yeah, they can. There are some samples online and even uh, Abrams uh, on the website, they have some photos, but also on my website, mm -hmm. which is just the newparisienne.com, I have some samples. Okay. Uh, Joanne Pye, mm -hmm. she's Canadian and uh, has been in Paris for about six years. And we were work doing a lot of work together just for stories that I write. Uh -huh. um, and we work very well together. And, you know, she wouldn't mind me saying this, so I'm going to say it. But you know, she she tends to work more in food and mm. and sort of the lifestyle space. And so yeah, I think yeah. this was also an interesting challenge for her to do a lot of portraiture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I knew she would nail all of the the detail shots and the and oh, the landscape. Oh yeah, Layla <laughs> Salani's apartment was like the easiest space to shoot. Um, so many really in, you know lovely details. Um, but, you know, I had already seen the way Joanne would take photos of chefs and mm -hmm. and other individuals in the, you know, travel and food space. And I said, yeah. you can do this. Yeah, yeah. And she's a very dear friend of mine. And so it was it was sort of like a no brainer that uh -huh. I would want to do this with her. Yeah. 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 And it, it sort of it, um, I don't know. So it, it adds so much to the book as well. Just having these not just not just portraits of the of the, the women and where they live, but sort of that there feels this kind of. I don't know this kind of coming together uh, between the between your mind and her mind. Yeah, sort of, it, it it works at one sort of yeah. aesthetic, one sort of. You know, and I deferred to her when we were going on these shoots with the women as to like you know what would you you know she would know about them and and their background and so I would say you know so how mm -hmm. how can we highlight her? You know, you have to make her feel comfortable. Um, you want it to be in a space that means something. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it, she was she was part of that creative process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing I wanted to, to mention is the sort of, I guess, the sort of practical side to yeah. the book. So uh, you have the interviews, but then you also sort of tap your guests for your interviewees yes. for their favorite addresses in Paris and, and places like that. And what I'm just curious about why you decided to give it that is edge. That is more of a link to the first book as uh -huh. well, which is called The New Paris. And was not meant to be used as a traditional mm -hmm. guide at all. Um, it turns out people were using it in that way, and I wanted to sort of make it seem or, or sort of set it up as still being a continuing story yeah, in a way. Yeah. Um, and also, I think it's very interesting. I mean, I get the question a lot. Where, mm -hmm. you know, are there women-owned restaurants? You know, people are looking for that kind yeah, of information, yeah, yeah. and so 
this is a way also to have them contribute to the travel component. Uh -huh. So it's not the first objective of the book, but um, I think people will will find that there are some really yeah. great places oh, to visit. Great addresses in there. Yeah, <laughs> and and even just you know the outdoor spaces. The idea was not for them all to be new or super contemporary, but mm. actually just how do these women live this city? Yeah, um, and yeah, I think yeah. that adds sort of an interesting element without having them to say it in that way. Mm -hmm. And final question. Is there anyone who's not in the book that you either tried to get into contact with and were unable to, or since you've written it, you think, oh, I wish I could have put her in? Uh, there are two women. Uh -huh. One is Jacqueline uh, Gompi, who founded Little Africa. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just love her. I, I think her background is so fascinating, and she's doing such good work mm -hmm. um, in the city and, and for the Afro-Caribbean community. Um, and Shirley Soignon, who's a comedian, and she created the Barbes Comedy Club. Okay, yeah. Uh, she, so, she, so Jacqueline I met after the fact, mm -hmm. um, or else she would have definitely been part of yeah, this. Yeah. Shirley I tried really hard <laughs> to nail down, and it was unfortunately didn't happen. Uh -huh. um, but I'm fascinated by her career, and she performed on um, Netflix, did this Comedians of the Universe mm -hmm. uh, or Comedians of the World series, and she represented France for that. Uh -huh. She's one of a few comedians. Um and I just love that there are, there's like a new wave of stand-up mm -hmm. um, sort of emerging in Paris, um, all over France, but specifically in Paris, and that she also decided to open a comedy club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Jerry Seinfeld visited in January when he was in town. So he didn't, I don't, he may have even performed. Uh-huh. I would think that he performed, given that he doesn't understand French, so it would have been a bit complicated for him <laughs> to just sit in the audience, but... You know, so that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, unfortunately, maybe one day I'll get to talk to her, but I'm fascinated by her well, work. I, for the next volume, maybe. Volume two. <laughs> yeah. Now, Lindsay, I'm going to get you to sign our books. Great. Uh, I will have already uh, plugged it to our, our listeners at the beginning of the podcast, but you're going to sign copies. So if you go to shakespeareandcompany.com, search for The New Parisienne, and we'll have um, signed copies available there. Amazing. For how long, I don't know, because it's already flying off the shelves. But maybe I'll keep inviting you back in to sign. Uh, Happy to come by. Oh, wonderful. So, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. By and speak to you again soon. A bientôt. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with Lindsay Tremuta and me, Adam Viles. We'll be back soon with more readings and conversations. Virtual for now, but hopefully back in the bookshop before too long. The intro and outro music is by the brilliant Alex Fryman, who will be performing on the terrace of our cafe every Sunday afternoon all through the summer. If you're in Paris or planning to visit, check out our website for more details. On behalf of everyone at Shakespeare & Company, I'd like to thank you for listening.